Welcome to Closing the Gap, and I'm your host, Denise Cooper. Ever wanted good advice or insights about your career, leadership, or navigating messy organizational politics? Getting good advice can make all the difference between making the right choices and worrying about what to do. So sit back, relax, and listen as my guests and I talk about lessons learned about career success, leadership, and HR in the 21st century. There's an old saying, you can't get anywhere in life without taking risk. And my next guest, Eric Watson, is a man who's built his career on taking risk. He was comfortable at Travelers Insurance in their claims department, seen as a rising executive, when in 1993, he got tapped on the shoulder to lead a new practice, one called diversity and inclusion. Since then, he's been an outspoken advocate and a role model, dispelling myths on what works and what doesn't. But he's also been a man who lived by his words. So, Eric, you're working for Kaleidoscope now. Tell me what your new role is. Thank you. Yeah, I am executive consultant with the Kaleidoscope Group. Excited to be a part of the organization. I am a consultant doing work with coaching executive CDOs and diversity leaders along with helping to do some work in the mentoring area as well as writing and speaking. It's been an exciting early 90 days and probably most enjoyable is my own growth and uh, learning from the collective wisdom that exists in the Kaleidoscope team today. So prior to doing this, you've had a series of jobs, all of them really in the, I'll say, supplier diversity, diversity. You've kind of been a pioneer. I know everybody hates being called a pioneer, but when you're kind of the only in the space, because you've worked for major corporations, um, Food Lion, who else have you worked for? Yeah, well, you know, it's been an interesting career. Uh, pioneer, I'm not offended by. Uh, I hope that comes with some bit of knowledge uh, when you're pioneering. But quite honestly, it's been fun. Uh, I started after graduating college in 78. I started with a St. Paul Travelers Insurance Company where I spent 21 years. At first 14, I was in claims doing claims catastrophe work and then was asked to do diversity for the last seven where I started out as a diversity officer, then vice president of diversity, and was fortunate when I started that I had the benefit in those years, mid-80s, of Dr. Robert Hall, Robert Hales, and others who mentored me. Spent those seven years at uh, St. Paul Travelers, moved on to Williams Energy in the oil and gas for four years. Uh, oil and gas industry was great because it was really a lot of good work internally to create the right employee value proposition for the work. And then went to work for Food Lion as Vice President of Diversity and moved on to Delhi's America, their parent company out of Brussels, and worked there for 12 years uh, with Food Lion and Delhi's. So it's been an extremely exciting uh, path. That was all D&I, some responsibility for supplier. And then for the last five years, up until the most recent 90 days, I was President and CEO of CVMSDC which is the affiliate of the National Minority Supplier Development Council responsible for North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. So it's been an exciting time. It sounds to me from this kind of short biography that you fell into being diversity or being the head of diversity. What made them ask you the first time to get into it, and what made you say yes? That's a great question, and I love sharing the story because I was uh, in what I thought was my dream job working in the catastrophe area for an insurance company. I love chasing storms, though that sounds a bit sadistic, but 
the one thing about storms and diversity work. It really was about caring about people. And when you come to a disaster site, you know, the one thing that people, you know, have to have is the ability to look in your eyes and, and trust you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And so that I enjoyed. The ask that came from the head of HR and the CEO was a little different. Actually, when they asked me to leave catastrophe and go to diversity, I was trying to look for what's the analogy, you know, what analogy or what's analogous to this work that you're asking me. And really, internally, when you work in catastrophe, you've got to estimate exposure. So I had a very good reputation uh, credibility with the business leaders around exposure and can remember, you know, not missing uh, predicting exposure, you know, to a certain range for most storms. So that was critical to make sure you, you came up with the, the right amount of exposure for reserves and also had a good relationship with, you know, working in storms, closing out storm offices. So the net was the influence and credibility I had with the senior leaders around the business. So that brought about the ask, and from a relationship standpoint, to doing the D&I work at that time. You know, it's interesting because part of what I'm pushing this year is that HR has really failed the business. Mm. It's really failed the business. And, And you're coming into this from the business side and making an impact is an it's one of the reasons why I think HR is failing the business. You've kind of, you know, DNI is usually sitting outside of HR looking in. Sometimes it's included. More lately, it is included than not. But talk to me a little bit about what you found. Well, that's interesting relative to my journey because I was in class. My background, I was an English lit major. So training and development. I did a lot of that for the claims department as well as catastrophe. So at one time, not good or bad, I don't brag about this, but I was sometimes once called by the HR's worst enemy because the claims leader would ask me to do stuff we would typically ask HR to do. Mm. So I had the stand-up skills, and that was another piece of exposure to the broader organization. But one digression, Robert Hales did tell me when I was asked that I shouldn't take the job. He said, because you're doing very well in a line function, when you move over to a staff function, you lose it's a different position. And if you don't do it well, don't think you're getting your footing back in a line job. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't take his advice. I took the job. But he agreed to mentor me. He mentored me for a day, once a month on a Friday. He would spend a Friday with me for a first year in the job and help mm-hmm. me understand the work. And he was Senior VP of Diversity and HR at Pillsbury at the time. So I got the breadth of understanding of how to leverage HR. And and quite honestly, for me, not for everyone, I reported to the CEO at that company for a short period of time when the HR leader changed. I preferred being a part of HR because I had ability to leverage my colleagues in talent acquisition, OD, and the work was so similar. I just wanted to make sure we had alignment. And I know for me, that's challenging and it's not all been perfect, but that time and then one other time, I didn't have a challenge reporting to HR and not reporting directly to the CEO. I actually preferred being in HR with my colleagues, and that worked for me. I did when I was on the executive team at LA's America. My boss, the head of HR, and I both sat at the table with the executive team together with a dotted line to the CEO, and that, that all worked for me. So how did you make it work? Because we read in the paper, I mean, the whole Me Too movement and Uber and company after company, even Starbucks. We've been trying to do diversity for a long time, and investigations, particularly around harassment and 
discrimination first come to HR most likely. Yeah. So they're certainly going to sit there. And the failure for companies to not be able to respond mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the reason why I'm wondering what's going on. What's yeah. different? Well, I won't say I'm special, but I, you know, had the benefit of having great HR folks. In fact, the head of HR that brought me into the HR function is still one of my best friends. And mm-hmm. I understood the work, respected their relationships. But, you know, more than anything, like in any organization, you know, you have to understand how the company makes money. So one of the things that worked for me when I think about my relationship to HR, you remember the old quality work where there was consumer-supplier relationships, basically the functions purchase your work from a staff mm-hmm. perspective. Yep. When when that happened, I was just in diversity, and more than anything, the leaders wanted to buy diversity now, mm-hmm. and I wasn't. But when I when we did that, you know, that meant that there was talent acquisition, there was OD, there was succession planning, so... For me, I then got the exposure to be involved with any mergers and acquisitions, succession planning. So I improved skills. So as I grew and moved to other organizations like Food Lion and others, I was engaged with succession planning, you know, adverse impact studies, the kind of things that didn't make diversity an add-on. It was integrated, and I had great support of leadership, great support of my HR colleagues, the partner in that work. So it didn't mean or seem like any time I was in the room, I was only looking at demographics. And the other thing, to your point, which I think is really, they didn't just bring me in when there were problems. And that was mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, I used to say, and we'll probably talk about this later, I used to always say, I'm not a fictive person. Don't call me when things are broken. Get me involved early. And I really didn't want to be engaged in fictive kind of work. But then you take today, Me Too, and some of the things that are going on. A lot of people are doing the work, and most of it is reactive. You know, it's just work that hasn't been done. And, and there is, uh, not to go straight to the heart of it, but there is in some places just a lack of accountability. I mean, we know how we should be behaving, but people aren't. And so the reaction that to this work or the reactionary positioning of this work, I don't think is the best place, but there's just a lot of it to be done, unfortunately, right now. Or it's coming to the surface right now, yeah. more so yeah. than it has in the past. Exactly, exactly. So if you had a person inside the organization, a minority, male, female, whomever, what's the difference between implicit bias, which is something we hear a lot about, versus discrimination? And if I were sitting inside the organization, how would I know the difference between the two? Yeah, well, I I don't know that they're any different, and I don't know that you can, you know, divide them. What I do think is that you've got to have the kind of culture where they're elevated enough that the the wrong is recognized as wrong and that the right is recognized as right. When you come from a value perspective and people being valued. So, you know, the implicit bias is clearly good people may be doing the wrong things from their perspective, but it can be just as volatile. And the, you know, adage micro inequities, you know, the 10,000 drops is as devastating as the, you know, splash of water that Mm -hmm. the impact that it has. So I think implicit bias can be as damaging as the outward thing. The one thing that I I think can happen from a broader HR organizational perspective is there's the ability to not recognize. That's why the proactive work is so important because the proactive work sometimes will uncover things and in what it might be a non-threatening 
or in your face way to say, here's something you need to look at versus, you know, when I think there's just as much volition to act when someone is doing something wrong, they need to know that, you know, this is unacceptable and there has to be accountability and consequence. And when you don't do that, I mean, it's like anything uh, that we've known uh, in raising children or having children, when someone tells you not to do something, it's wrong, but you do it and there's no consequence then it ain't wrong. And that's mm-hmm. what we have come to is allowing people to behave and do things. And if there's no accountability, no consequence, and you allow that to impact your culture, the engagement of people, and your value systems becomes a part of a, an insidious you know, kind of behavior, then who you say you are is not really who you are. And that's mm-hmm. why I think implicit bias is really, in some ways, can be no different. What I do think is most important is if you identify either one, it's what you do about it, not so much the recognition of it, though. We have made, and don't get me wrong, but we've made implicit bias like a silver bullet, and it's not. And it's existed for years. And I think it's been a way for you know, me or someone to say, well, I'm not bad. Well, if it's having the impact on you as a woman based on what I'm doing, then I gotta, I gotta face that I should be accountable for that, and the behavior should not be just, you know, accepted as something I didn't know, so it's okay. Well, what you're talking about, I think, at a very high level is the difference between intent and impact. Exactly. And so I may never intend to do harm, but the impact of my behavior might cause Mm -hmm. harm to someone. So if I don't know that I'm doing harm in a situation, how do I make this right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you make an excellent point. And when you get to that, that area, when someone tells you the impact, intention doesn't matter. You know, good intentions are great, but when it's having an impact, impact, in my mind, will always outstrip intention. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think when we fall to what some people get offended by when they think that, you know, is politically correctness. I, I don't use that word. I don't really understand it. But I do think when there is a situation and my intent is one thing, but the impact is different. I'll give you an example. Not tell too many stories, but when I was in the work, I felt like I was doing a good job and things were going well. I had a very close friend for a project, and it was in Minnesota, and I'm from the South. I'm from Charlotte. I remember telling her we just had a great project closeout. Got in a room in front of the cleanse department and joined the best ladies I worked with. She said, I'm a woman. <laughs> and so I said, okay. And I went on, you know, we've been working together six months. And then she came to my desk and just said, thank you. And I told her, I said, well, you know, I don't know if I offend you, but, you know, I'm from the South and that's a compliment to, that, that you're a lady. And she mm-hmm. said, I, I don't mean to offend you, but I'm not a lady. I'm a woman. And I took offense to it. Now, his, my intent was not that, but the impact was one thing. And I even went to the place, well, you know, she can't accept my compliment. But what I needed to understand is the gift is valued by the receiver, not the giver. But I was putting more value, my intent versus the impact. And that was one of the, you know, it was a tough lesson for what I thought was a nice southern guy. But it was a lesson to be aware that, you know, my intent could be the best. But if the impact doesn't land the way it is, that's where the value is. It's not in my saying something or giving something if I don't understand the act of it. You know, I'm glad we got to this kind of point because my feeling now and what I'm feeling more strongly about is this idea of accountability mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. impact that we have in general. 
And one of the things that I think makes this work so much more difficult, diversity, and I'm not just talking about gender and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the Title VII kinds of definition, but just having people who aren't like you in a general sense. So an American working for a European company, you know, that whole idea of we come from different places, north versus south, east versus west, big city versus urban, that whole idea is that for the most part, our accountability system is the performance management. And performance management today for too many companies and too many people is really more about the activities you did mm-hmm. and how hard mm-hmm. you tried mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. what was the actual outcome. And if I'm not held accountable for outcomes, the mm-hmm. results, the impact of what I did in other parts of my life, it almost feels like an interesting juxtaposition to be held for the intent and outcome of what I feel is, in your case, I was saying, thank you, lady, versus she wanted to be a woman. Mm-hmm. And that kind of problem in my head makes me more resistant because now I'm clearly not understanding because if I put enough effort in, if I put in enough intent, I could miss my mark and I could wind up being an average performer. And in some cases, I've seen where people are high performers because they mm-hmm. put in a bunch of effort, right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess because I feel like If we're not managing the collective of the culture and what is accountability, what are we really measuring in terms of impact and helping people understand that impact or outcome is really what you get paid for because ultimately that's what the CEO gets paid for. You either had good products or didn't. You either met the customer's needs or you didn't. And you either made money or you didn't. I mean, those are kind of the three things they get graded on, right? Exactly. And and I think you hit on the point. So when you talk about it, one of the challenges in D&I work is that we set success metrics up around just outcomes. So mm-hmm. if I hire more women, hire more minorities, you know, my environmental scores go up. All of those have, from my perspective, have to have three major impacts. You got to help you make more money. They got to help people want to come and stay to work with you. And they got to elevate your brand. So you can do all of those things. But I think businesses that do that and the impact isn't being a more successful business is where they get it wrong, which puts people right in this place to where I haven't done anything bad to wrong, so I can't be bad. But, you know, when you're running a business, there's a lot of things that you may do that still may be good. But if it doesn't make you money, you can't keep doing them. So, you know, fundamentally, I think we spend a lot of years doing outcome metrics. And because we haven't measured impact and we don't spend time measuring impact, we're not going to be successful in a sustainable way. And that means, to your point, accountabilities change, systems change, because they're much more seen as being business impactful versus incrementally people impactful. That conversation seems to be missing, especially when you're in a growing company or a fast-growing company or a company that is truly in transformation. You know, they've, mm-hmm. you know, lots of retail. So, you know, grocery stores and retail chains are really having a hard time because, you know, the consumer is changing so much and as such, tensions are high. Mm-hmm. And impact hasn't been, as you put it, if you haven't started on good footing, right, where yep. you're nurturing the culture along the way, when the crisis happens, it's pretty hard to put, you know, put a nice face on that. Because now you're in fix-it mode. Yep. Because we, we want to say you started out just to be the business case, but in essence, what's the business value? What's the importance of the work? Well, 
at some point, depending on your culture, it has had the flexibility and the readiness to say, we need something different. We need to be something that's different, do something. So let's just take your analogy with, you know, grocery, uh, the retail market. People need and want all of those things that they have in sale. But do you understand the need from the standpoint of value? You know, the only way that value is important is when it's responding to a need. And I think what gets missed in this work of diversity is we begin to say we assume what people need, but we don't understand what value it brings in the diversity of those individuals. So then it doesn't have the same impact. You could put diverse food in a grocery store, but if you don't understand the need perspective, and need comes with everything like availability, cost, my particular substance for the taste of it, all of those things. I mean, and I won't go down things that are in the store that everyone takes, and you can just say ketchup or just say barbecue sauce. Everyone has a different palate, and I moved 11 times in my career, and I can tell you barbecue sauce in every part of this country is different. So from a retail standpoint, you just can't have the barbecue sauce if you don't understand not just the ethnicity is one thing, but the palate. I mean, you make, mm-hmm. and that's the level of effort in this work because the person buying it is the outcome. The impact is whether they taste it and go buy it again or other people mm-hmm. buy it. And that's where you really get down to are we making money? Are we impacting people who are different by doing something? Well, and also understanding their business models because some right. businesses in general are not about maintaining customers. They're about their acquisition and the yep. hunt for new customers, et cetera. And some companies, you know, their lifeline really is about maintaining a longer-term relation. Mm-hmm. And so for mm-hmm. those companies who really have to have customers repeat business and, as you know, wallet share issues, those kinds mm-hmm. of things that they're trying to manage, then I think they may have or it may be an easier way to start integrating the conversation around diversity, not just with employees, but the way employees treat customers, the way we have impact and impact on the bottom line, impact on the customer relationship, impact on the products that we choose to sell and the marketing that goes along to attract the kinds of customers. But I think as long as we keep this in this narrow band of employee engagement or employees and hiring and counting the numbers and the activities, the activities, what you call outcomes, I call them activities. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, do we have enough at this level? Do we have enough women, you know, heading towards the board? When we're looking at our succession planning, do we have a diverse slate? That's mm-hmm. activity counting yep. versus are we seeing a way in which we're getting new or innovative or innovative marketing, which is adding more sales, or innovative products, which is growing our customer base. As long as our conversation is so narrowly defined and lack that integration, I think that's where the difference between a cutting edge or a successful HR group is versus those who are still very much activity-based, laws-based, compliance-based. Because as you said with a child, you can't make a child do nothing. And in fact, (laughs) when they get to be a teenager, the fastest way to get them to do the opposite is say, don't do that. Right. Yeah. And you and I both know, but, you know, this is so counting is not strategic. It's fundamental to any business. you got to be mm-hmm. counting something, and mostly money, but counting is not strategic. So when you think about how you make money and you think about today, the ideation, the innovation, the technology you just needed, you're not counting. you got to do something with the data that you got. 
And as big as we get, you know, with blockchain and data analytics, it all comes back to people. So you can have all the data, but what we tend to not understand is when you get to count and you got better data, it comes down to what do you do with it with people because that's really, the, the in my mind, the flywheel that when that turns and you're making money and people are happy, that's when you have the ability to grow. And the way the next generations are thinking and getting things as fast as they're changing, it's not going to be just a simple, I've got more of these and more of that. It's going to be the value of what you've got. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, this idea of how do we run a company really has to be more around the implementation of a strategy. Because I say all the time, that companies don't fail for a lack of a good idea. No. They fail because they cannot implement Ex- one. Exactly. <laughs> Execution. 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 And this idea of not being able to understand that the ability to execute really is this idea, not just of the container culture framework in which we're doing, but it's about understanding everyone, understanding not just in strategic vision or strategy, that mission, that kind of thing, but they have to understand what performance is. And performance is really what was the impact of what you did. Mm-hmm. How did you, you come across it? You hit the, the operative word. And, and to me, when I say it's simple or simplistic, but it's the same thing that's happening in the DNI space that's happening in, in business. And I think that's why you can't look at them differently. You got information. You got more information than you've ever had. Yes. We get information and then we act. What's missing is understanding. Mm-hmm. And you move to a point to where people, because things are moving back, you can't even say you don't understand. So, I mean, it's as simple as we have a number of challenges in our community. We got tons of information and we want to go act. What's missing is the understanding. We don't understand mm-hmm. each other. So whatever actions you take are going to be less successful because I don't know that, you know, because times are moved that we don't slow down, but we clearly don't have the space to say we have information and now we understand the information at a level that our action is are going to be impactful versus we're going to say we've taken more action. I think it's an element of how businesses are run. It's an element of how diversity is being executed or not executed. And it's all around that middle step of understanding, as you just said. Yeah, and understanding, and that's the piece that I still scratch my head when I talk to executives. Understanding means that you actually have to play with an idea. You have to have other people infuse their thinking, their perspective Mm -hmm. to come Mm -hmm. up with it. And everyone in the conversation has to understand that our biases, our implicit biases, those things that – we don't always think about it. I call it your habitual way of viewing the world. That's, That's right. what implicit bias. It's just your habitual way of viewing the world. Come into play when you don't even know. And then how do you react when someone has a different opinion or a different point of view? And can you hold your space or your tongue or your thinking long mm-hmm. enough to be able to say, well, I don't understand that. Let's talk more about it. That's because right. it's only in that we will begin to understand and practice which is the big piece. I'm, you know, we can't practice. We don't take enough time to practice because you have to practice thinking outside the box when it doesn't count so that when it does count, it's part of your habitual thinking. Well, you think about any process that I, I don't go to sports, you can go to anything. There's information, there's understanding, and then there's practice to get the competency. You don't go from understanding to just being totally competent. You may have some level of action or skill, but practicing is so important 
to increase your level of competency, which, you know, gets inside that whole theory. Competency comes from experience, exposure, and immersion. And if you're not doing some of those things, still moving to action with some level of understanding. Practice, because most of us are applied learners. You know, once you do things more time, nothing is not always perfect the first time, and you don't get to perfection, but practicing gets you to a level of competence. Yeah, I relate it to riding a bike. You can read all the books you want. You can watch all the videos you want. Mm -hmm. But until you get on that bike, (laughs) in that exactly. (laughs) <laughs> understand what balance is, yep. be able to do sensing, uh, exactly. what's it like on concrete versus on grass versus, you know, that's what the bigger experts or the more well-known experts are talking about, situational sensing. Mm-hmm. So until exactly. you hone that ability to see that, ooh, wait a minute, something's not right, you changed and I need to slow down because I'm asking something new of you, did you understand? Are you accepting? What's your perspective? Until we can practice that, then getting the kinds of outcomes, those high-performance outcomes, generally don't happen, and it is a practice. And what makes this work so complicated in our mind, and and I say oftentimes, stealing from a friend of mine, it isn't complicated, but it's complex because it is people, and we want it to be linear. And to your point about situational and, and just think about the dynamics. I can master or get better at diversity in a company. And that was one of the things that when I moved from St. Paul Companies to Oil and Gas, that was at one of my bosses' suggestions. He said, you're doing good here, but can you do it in another culture, in yes. another industry, in another environment to where you haven't lived? And that was probably one of the spaces where I honed better expertise of understanding culture because situationally, I can be very successful in California in this work, may not be so successful in Tennessee, and I may be successful in an industry that is relative to B2B, not so much in B2C. So I think understanding that the progression in D&I work in any business is relative to not one, understanding what it is you're trying to do, but understanding the three things, that's it, who you are, where you are, and what you want, impacts the ability to achieve success individually and organized. So let's go back to that person who's a middle manager, African-American, mm-hmm. sitting there. And for the most part, they're confused over the amount of, you know, the words that the company says, you know, we embrace diversity. Yet the way they're treated feels like they're not being valued. What is the coaching that you would do to them? Or what's the words of wisdom that you would give them? Well, you know, I think you may know him at the, for me, Price Cobb who passed away a couple of months ago, was a psychiatrist and psychologist. I spent some time with his space, and and he helped me a lot. So the the first thing that he taught is the only person that likes victims are victims. So the one thing is that you can't put yourself in a space that's what's happening is happening because I'm this or that or whatever. So that's one thing. The other thing that was probably the first thing is understand Myself and there, there were some basic things. Understand if I feel I'm good, what's telling me people? And sometimes because of who you are, be extreme minority, what they'll say, you know, that's good. And like, but really, what evidence do you have that you're good from a self perspective? Then secondarily, test. You know, what does your peers say? What does your boss say? And one of the most hurtful things is when you think everything's going great and then someone else is saying something different about you than you think. And then lastly, understand how is what I'm doing impacting the business. So in a holistic
success. Know yourself, know your peers and your boss, and know the business you're in. And, and you have to know that from a tangible way, not from anecdotal things. You know, have you gotten rewards? Do you have degrees? Do you have certifications? Have you gotten promotions? Because people say a lot of things, things happen in an environment, but when the values on the wall don't reflect who you are, what's happening for you, then that's when you got to come back and ask yourself, how do I fit into this? And that, I think Jay Howard called it uh, personal efficacy. If, mm-hmm. if I don't know myself and know how I stand, then I can't be critical of other people when they do things that I thought, you know, I can be mad. thought I was doing something different. It could all be wrong, but that usually doesn't change your mind. When they say, right. right. You know, you're not getting this promotion. You know, me saying I thought it was doesn't usually change your mind. But that's mm-hmm. where I think those levels of ownership that Price Cobb taught around personal knowledge, peer and boss knowledge, and then just knowledge of the business. Am I having an impact on the business? No matter what you said, how does my work impact the business? And I also would add, and maybe it's under the know yourself, but it, I would also add to that is, is that, mm-hmm. you know, now it's kind of called emotional intelligence, but it is being mm-hmm. able to understand those three things more outside of yourself. And Mm -hmm. to be able to communicate that to other individuals. Because part of what I talk to people about all the time is, what conversations have you had with your boss about this? Well, my boss that now wants me to do this, you know, nonsensical work where I'm trying Mm -hmm. to drive revenue through blah, 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 blah. I said, well, then you need to find out why your boss thinks that that nonsensical work is Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what, none of us, when you're at different levels and, I know maybe you've experienced this. I know when I was, you know, when I started out as a journalist or I was a recruiter, I would think, you know, I'd look up and say, you know, if I had that job, boy, would I do it different. And then when I got that job and saw a different level of language or uh, not language, but different, well, language as well as what the responsibilities were, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I became them in yeah. my emphasis and my effort, right? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That's one of those things that it always seems like. I I remember I wouldn't treat people that way if I was there. And perception is reality. Sometimes you think you're treating people a certain way, but their perception is different. But the real thing, and and I'll go back to this question about people wanting to grow, and it gets back to only start knowing what you want and you're getting and you get to the mid-level manager recognizing that managing is different than leading and Mm -hmm. when you get promoted from an individual contributor to a manager because you've already shown the ability most times for us to manage we don't typically get it until you're already doing it and when you become a leader you've got to already be leading in a manager role and showing those skills and abilities before you get there because very seldom do you get to, you know, learn in a job. We don't. You don't get to learn in a job. You mean right minorities or women? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, non-majority, exactly. yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't get the opportunity to learn on a job. We've had to already exhibit the skills. And, for instance, if I go back to moving from the line job and catastrophe to diversity, one of the things that I think reflect on it, I already had a relationship and knew how to then talk to the executive managers about their catastrophe loss. So going to talk to them about diversity, at least I had a relationship to know how to present to them what they needed to have, not in a dissertation format, but here's the fact, here's what you got, and be able to answer a question and not, you know, go on a, a tirade about what it is not. And, you know, in this space at that time, there was a lot of people who didn't think that it was successful. And one of the probably most motivating things for me is one of the 
Well, actually, I think he was the most powerful person who said he did not think diversity had a business impact. And he also told my boss when I was asked to take the job, he was two of the 12 executives that said he didn't think I should be in it. But when I got the job, and he also told people there wasn't a business case, he did support me. I got his good favor. He started hiring on women and minorities and actually became the number two guy in the company and said that diversity was the reason why he had been elevated to that level. But he so also tell me, okay, so yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing that most people, particularly people who are whatever diverse means, right? Mm-hmm. How did you do that? What story did you use? How much of yourself did you share with people? I mean, you came with a bit of a track record simply because you had been part of the business before. Yeah. But yeah. this was somebody who pretty much let you know they didn't believe this was the right move for you, this yeah. was the right work for you, and that the yeah. work you were doing was really not going to help the business. And the thing that I knew at the time, though he wasn't the CEO, he ran the biggest function. His department made the most money, and that was the thing that I learned earlier. Function, level, and role make a big difference and his function was making the most money. He was, in my mind, probably the most powerful person, though he wasn't the CEO. So I decided that I need to have him, regardless of what he thought of me, be a supporter. I spent more time with him. I got to understand his leadership team. You know, they were made up like him. So once they began to get it, and he began to get it, he was in medical. They had never written the three black medical schools. He decided mm-hmm. that we needed to look at. They wrote the three black medical schools, and then it became a badge of honor. We wrote all three. And what, what happened is they got in the three black medical schools. They got found out all the doctors are black doctors. So then they began to get these doctors the kind of research that they weren't getting. And so they captured that. Once he became successful, to be honest, he saw they could make in that space. He came to me, and this was a, sort of the changing point. He said, look. I'm hiring people because he was the kind of guy, I'm going to do it more and better than anybody. So he hired more minorities. They didn't have the environment to support it. So he says, I got these people. They say it's not an even plan. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but they tell me that I got to fix it. So how are we going to fix it? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I think you need a development program focused just on them. And I said, I know people don't want to do that. He said, well, how would you do it? So I went away and came back. I said, I think you need an executive development program. For minorities, he said, well, this needs to be at a certain level. We can't take trainees. So he said, this is what I do. I'll give you a quarter of a million dollars. You create the program, and I'll you invite the other functions to be a part. So if you, if I got three people, go get three or four across the company, get the top 15 or 20 that you think. And we did. We got the top 15, and seven of which got promoted within a year to 18 months of being in the program. One guy dropped out because the good news, he said, I now know I can't go in this company after going through this because I'm an entrepreneur, and he left. And then the others in a year or two years got promoted. The, the key to that was he invested where nobody else would have going to give me a quarter of a million dollars, but he had it. Now, once right. those people came out and they were successful, he also was the kind of guy that said, look what I did. Right, right, right. <laughs> and those people moved across the other functions, and they became Joe's soldiers. He was an ex-military guy. They mm-hmm. would always go back and say, Joe, put me in this program. And of course, once they got in function, they started elevating and promoting people. So he, he did have, you know, the kind of traction that we wouldn't have gotten but for his investing, his supporting. And I have to tell you, he put the quarter of a million dollars. And when, when they came to town, he says, no, 
I don't want them at this. I want them at the hotel where the executives stay. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want them to get, when they finish, I don't want a certificate. He said, I want something symbolic that's going to be almost like a trophy. That When it's in their office, people are going to say, what is that? How did you get it? So he invested at the highest level. And he was positioned that way because he had the money. So it made the program different than any other program. And it was only focused on minorities and women. And this was all minorities. Mm -hmm. We did one for women. But Mm -hmm. I did that because... I understood his motivation around success. If his business was going to be successful, if he had the best people, then he would invest. And when he stood on the stage as the number two guy and said, I got here because of diversity, that was it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I could never say anything that would have given more credibility to the work than him saying that. Yes, and so if I hear you right, then step one is you have to understand who is the player that needs to be in the game. There you go. (laughs) Who's the person, and then what is it that motivates them Mm -hmm. to engage? And then from there, maybe it was a drip, 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 because you kind of shortcutted it because Mm -hmm. of this interview point. But Mm -hmm. I would imagine from what I've had to do, it is a drip, drip, drip. Yep, yep. Constantly going back. I Mm -hmm. say you know, one of my sayings is, is if you're not ready for 700 no's, don't come. Right? <laughs> That's right. You know, That's right. You, you just have to say, oh, no today, but you got to keep coming and keep staying in the game to be able to do that. And that change doesn't happen on the dime. That's right. Out of it. And so what you're describing is really, and I think this is the piece we don't get, we don't talk about a lot because we segment and uh, deconstruct things. What you're really mm-hmm. talking about is how to lead a change initiative inside the company. Right. It just happens to be called DNI, diversity initiative. But a yep. change initiative of, you know, we need to broaden our customer base, we need to have new products and services, or even down to, you know, we got this computer system and we need all employees to lock it down and not open us up to vulnerabilities. So if yep. we have an update, you got to change the update. And it's really understanding how to motivate people. Mm-hmm. To actually push the button, and it yep. doesn't happen in a one-time conversation. Yeah, That's exactly. what I heard. Yep, yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. That and so that. this idea of now we have this individual minority in the middle of the organization, helping them understand at first it's not personalized, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not about you. It mm-hmm. really is about it being a change initiative, and either you're going to be a change agent or you're not going to be a change yeah. agent. Yeah. Because that is the definition. You know, leadership gets these. In my opinion, they get this fancy command role and all of this and fancy words. But it's really about understanding people and how they change and your ability to be self-aware enough to know where your strengths are, where you want to play, and that if you're really going to be successful, persistence over time and resilience against those 700 no's, right? Yep are the keys that are going to make you successful in the organization to have you achieve the kinds of goals and outcomes, results that you want to have. And that clarity of understanding that is the game, regardless of the industry, because like you, I've been been in retail, I've been in oil and gas, I've been in sales, B2B, Mm -hmm. call centers. Mm -hmm. I've had a rich diversity of opportunity to work with. What I tell people as part of my story, I've worked with some of the smartest people in the world. Right. (laughs) And some of the most brilliant leaders, because what they were invested in was about change. And when you understand what their hot button is for what they want to achieve, Mm -hmm. then you have to understand how to get engaged with it and help them from whatever your point of view is, whether it's selling them $4 million technology. Yep. 
piece of technology, understanding the data that we got from our latest net promoter scores or customer scores yep. to who are we going to hire and where we're going to place them. Well, you hit the nail on the head. This, this work, this change work, and if you know and understand how to evaluate one individually in an organization, the level of readiness, and you can't start with we're going to run, you know, a marathon when you got people you know, who don't even work out. So you got to start mm-hmm. with the right level of pace. And one of the things that we miss in this work, and it's why I always start with the business, if you understand the business culture, because that's so, so important. And if it's not the appropriate first step, sometimes you'll never get a chance. So you got to have people begin in a place where they at least feel like I can be successful. No bad, no matter how either bad or what they've done or not done. They, most people want to start out you know, well. That's why with exercise, when people start out, I'm not losing, they stop. But you got to mm-hmm. start at a place to where I feel like I'm going to have some level of success. That's why it's just so important to know where you're starting from foundationally mm-hmm. and where you're going to versus saying, you know, sometimes well, I'm going to go do training, I'm going to go do this. But, you know, the thing that you want to do more than anything is have system change and systems are not going to change without there being, to your point, some kind of cultural recognition. Yeah. So on the other side, we often are just running at 500 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Our bodies mm-hmm. are fatigued. You know, our mm-hmm. bodies are muscles. Organizations have muscles and fatigue. And so I was yeah. reading the other day about a new term, diversity fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard it? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So I was actually moderating a panel two weeks ago with a group of millennials. Someone actually in the audience asked that question, you know, what's going on with diversity fatigue? And, uh, you know, if I were to be totally transparent, today it's also couched with what's going on on a societal level to where things that right things are not wrong is right. So that makes it even more complex. People are more emboldened around, you know, inappropriate behavior. So you're taking on a different kind of approach. Now, for me, when I think about fatigue, part of it comes back to are you trying to address an element of the business without the business? And so I can remember plenty of times I remember having a leader saying, you know, what if you did nothing? What would happen? But let's just say we didn't do anything. But that's yeah, going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, always different kind of, of motivations. But I think at the end of the day, you start where people are. You can't all of a sudden create a sprinter out of someone who doesn't run. So I think part of the fatigue comes when we create expectations that aren't realistic. It's, just, it's challenging work. It's difficult work. We've been doing it for a long time. But think about it. One, there isn't going to be an end game. Two, understanding the environment we're doing it in on a societal level today. And then three, global organization and individual. Take your tracks around, you know, where can I have success? On a global basis, you may not be able to have success, but you may have some organization. Individual, it may not be that you got your personally or that individuals are getting the kind of results they want. But I think you got to choose the work and then what's the analogy. You can't swallow an elephant in one bite. And I think too much today, it makes you want to try to go after something big. You still got to manage how much and at what rate because it isn't going to happen overnight. That, that's where I think fatigue comes in. It's, it's so heavy right now. You can't lose the mindset that the little wins today 
are as big as the big ones, and that that's where I think the fatigue comes. Yeah, yeah, and and constantly, constantly pushing versus yeah. focusing on practicing. Yeah, I, uh, I rem- in, in a wide arena. You know? Yeah, I remember having one success is you know function turn their numbers around. Now, if someone said, "What did diversity have to do with it?" The only thing that I wanted them to celebrate is they had business success so they could do something else. Because before, they were having so much trouble making money, they didn't think they had time to do it. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right, right. Yeah. So if people are struggling with, you know, what they do every day, it's hard to say that this is going to be the thing to change their life. But if they know how to begin to be successful in what they're doing, they become open to doing something different. And, And I think, you know, that's business. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And it's, yeah. it's those small areas that you can open them up under a mm-hmm. different label that they can accept, yep. you know, yep. that will exactly. open up the door a little bit more to something else. So today I'm not going to talk to you about diversity, but I'm going to talk to you about let's look at this data a little bit differently. Let's get in some new voices in here. We'll see it from a different perspective. Exactly. Let's see how we can rearrange this so that you can see what's going on. What's working in this organization? Right. Tell right. me who your high performers are. What are they doing different than everybody else's? And that gets their attention, and it's the old adage of, if I help you first, then you will turn to help me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, and, but I've got to help you on what is important to you, not what right. I think is important to you. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> It's really helping you on your agenda first. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's what people bristle at, you know, particularly minorities. It's the biggest struggle because I also believe that because this is really change work, mm-hmm. that you have to have mm-hmm. both ends change at the same time. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and too much of the work is focused on white men or white majority when uh, some uh, of the work has to be focused. We, minorities, have to begin to um, desensitize or objectify what is going on, and come at it from a different perspective uh, and know that and believe in the principles that we preach, right? Doing exactly. to others, and mm-hmm. I want to help you. You, I want you to help me, but before you will help me, especially in the context of where we work now with suspicion and conspiracy mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. being tossed around all over the place, <clears throat> I've got to know that I can trust you to yeah. do what you say you're going to be able to do. And so much trust is foundational to everything that's going on. Everybody's skeptical, to your point, conspiracy theories. You know, why does this happen to me? Why is it happening? Versus, you know, just understanding if there's no trust, then it's very likely you're going to get anything done. And it's also understanding that if you don't trust others, then you will not be successful, period. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a hard pill to take, right? That is a hard pill for people to take that, oh, you mean I have to trust first before I can get anything done? Yeah, that is the way the game goes. Because if you're not trustful, I can mm-hmm. see through it. Yeah. I can and, see and, through it. And today, most people can. So <laughs> that ability to have people hope that it's going to happen is pretty much gone. So, you know, as we come to a close, let's talk about you a little bit. Because this work isn't easy. Mm-hmm. How do you stay resilient? Well, you know, Part of it is I'm back home after being away for 25 years in an environment that sometimes I feel hasn't changed much. But you know, having grown up here in Brookhill, lived in University Park and Hyde Park on the west side, you know, I do have to say I'm fortunate. So one of the things is 
understanding where I started from and that foundation carries me into where do I want to go. The other thing... Okay, is, so for those people who are not from Charlotte, what does that foundation mean? What is it? So it's really grounded in the way I was raised. And I use this exercise of having people say, if a billboard of your picture was on the highway, what one word would describe who you are? And even back to handling catastrophe to doing diversity work, it's just exhibiting care for other people. So no matter if they are not good people or bad people, if you're trying to move them to another place, they've got to feel like you really care and you have the intentions. You care about good things happening to them regardless of where they are. So for me, the reward has been caring about people and the reciprocal response of people doing good things because you care about them regardless of where you find them in their station of life. So, from you know, my resilience is, you know, I feel part of how I do this work and what I've done is caring about people. And I'll just go back to the guy who, you know, I may not have thought cared about me if he didn't want me to be the officer, didn't think I could be successful. But I cared about him being successful and the reciprocity in that elevated both of us. So I spend a lot of time trying to find that point for people in organizations that reflects how they can get to the point of hope, how they can get to the point of feeling like they can be better as opposed to being broke. And I can't work in a place where, you know, everything, though I can be a contrarian, everything is all bad, so that's going to get us to a better place. you got to start a point of hope. So you're putting it in popular terms today as your vision is, I care. Yep. Your mission is start from hope. And then exactly. from those two, all things are possible. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's been my experience. And how do you stay hopeful when so well, much, especially, I mean, what practices do you use to stay hopeful? If I tell you what the most powerful influence to my hope right now is millennials. I have six millennial mentors that I lean into, some on a daily basis, one I'm working with now, that they help me with everything from my phone to my technology, understanding, you know, artificial intelligence, the kind of things. But more importantly, it's influencing my thinking, you know, how I see the world and where things are going to go, their ability to see and understand how the culture of innovation can change things. And what I may call creativity, they're more, they're smarter, they're more facile in their thinking, they get things done better. So that, to me, has been probably the one of the most motivating things in this work today is the whole millennial culture and how I think they can change and will change how the world exists. That's a different story than a lot of the popular press about them being self-absorbed and uh, incapable of working with people, not wanting to have a full job, etc. And you know the fundamental piece about that is essence of cultural competence. If I don't have exposure to them, if I don't experience them, if I don't immerse myself to where I'm the only one with them that's not one of them, I don't really know. I don't really understand them. So I think it's easy. And, and if you think about it, every culture, when I was coming along as a boomer, people thought I was too aggressive. Then it was Generation X when I brought them in. You know, they wanted, they don't. I think every generation, unfortunately, we do with them what we say we shouldn't do in diversity and create stereotypes about who they are when in essence it's the environment that they're in that reflects what they do. So I'm trying to create a space where they're in my space 
and I learn from them much more than I think they feel they can learn from me. And and that's my ability. That's the you know when you talk about resilience, that gets me excited. That that gets me up in the morning. Know there's somebody I can learn from that's going to do something better, faster, smarter than than I've been able to do. And, and let's be real in our space when you look at minorities. If, if it's going to take them the same time it took me to get to where I am, we're never going to have any more than onesie twosie. You know, we got to move mm-hmm. faster. Mhm, 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 and. This technology, this this new way of everyone having access to data at real time, yep. and the ability to discern truth, fact mm-hmm. from propagated kinds of things, is an interesting time that we live in. I don't know. It's it's a very interesting time, and yet I don't know that there's anything new with what's happening now. The only thing is, is we have a new engine behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, when we talk about the Facebook issues and the fake accounts that Russia or China or some other country yep. um, might yeah. have been putting out there. I don't know that it's any different than, than the propaganda that was being dropped in loosely flyers from planes over Korea during the Korean War. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing how what's happening today seems to be about somebody else and not about us. The same way that I know I saw things and viewed things as a young person no different. So I I want to embrace that part of me that doesn't know, but won't have access to it without them, of young people. Well, I want to thank you for this time. I think this is a great conversation. I wish you so much joy and happiness and success in your new role with Kaleidoscope. I love the fact that you are staying connected with a bunch of millennials. <laughs> we're helping you keep those neurons yes. connected yes. and that neural yes. network going really, really well. We can me just love hearing that, that opportunity. So thank you so much for your time. Thank I you. really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. You got it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and took away a few tips that will close the gap between making your dream life your real life. If you enjoyed this podcast, pass it along. Leave a question or a comment below. It would mean the world to me if I could connect with you. So, go out to my LinkedIn page, ask for a connection, or Twitter at CoachHR. And remember, answers are better than anger. Seek empowerment rather than the divisiveness. And the responsibility is yours to achieve the life that you really want to have. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.